Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Suze McCormick. I'm at MoFo, where I chair our ESG and social enterprise groups, and it's really great to be here today. For those of you who are tuning in or listening to the recording, this is the seventh episode of our conversation entitled ESG Influencers. It's to Leading Transformative Change, where we have been joined for the last several months by some of really the leaders in this space to, in this space being ESG and impact and climate, to really talk about tools and how companies and investors and today financial institutions can move the needle in a responsible way. And I'm just thrilled this morning that we are being joined today by one of the leading voices in the net zero transition, Curtis Ravenel, who is senior advisor to the co-chairs and vice chair of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS. And there are a lot of acronyms, which I'm going to try to avoid, but GFANS is one you certainly should know. If you don't, GFANS is the world's largest coalition of financial institutions that are committed to transitioning the global economy to net zero in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And they are very active. And I think this morning, Curtis is going to share what they've been working on, what some of the headwinds are, but... I think also some good news in terms of the amount of progress that is being made by GFANS and its financial institution members. Curtis has also had a very illustrious career. He has been in this space for quite a long time. In fact, he founded the Sustainable Business and Finance Group at Bloomberg, which is where I first met him and served as its global head for more than 20 years. And as Bloomberg integrated sustainability considerations really into all of the firm's operations globally, he was a founding member of the Secretariat for Financial Stability and the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, or TCFD, which has been widely adopted. He also serves as a distinguished fellow in sustainable finance at Climate Works and is on the boards of both the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment and the Sustainable Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, SASB, where I was also a board member for a number of years. Finally, he was awarded a David Rockefeller Fellowship for Partnership. He was appointed by the Obama administration to serve on the U.S. chapter of the G8 Advisory Board on Impact Investing and received the Columbia Business School Exemplary Leadership Award in 2016. So that's a whole lot. It just gives you a little bit of an idea of just the length of time that Curtis has been in the space, but the depth of expertise and experience that he brings as he advises and works with GFANS and the financial institutions, particularly, as I mentioned, as we have the positives and negatives come around the world in terms of advancing climate and ESG. So I, I really believe he is uniquely well positioned to share his insight. And to lead the discussion, Aaron Kramer, who is the president and CEO of BSR, and I really believe BSR is the leading light at advising investors and companies on responsible and real ESG. And so I will turn it over to Aaron. Thank you very much, Suze, and welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us. Curtis, I hadn't realized you went to Davidson, so now I'm tempted to call you the Steph Curry of the world of sustainable finance, since I live in the Bay Area. Can I ask a question, Curtis? Did you have my father taught philosophy at Davidson Earl McCormick? Did you have my father 
No, I never did. I did not know that. Oh, that's so interesting. Wow. Okay. Worlds, back, back worlds colliding. Worlds colliding. Terrific. Gosh, I'm tempted just to go down that that pathway. So Curtis, I think as we all heard in the intro from Suze, thank you for that. And thanks for your kind words about BSR, Suze. Suze is also a board member of BSR, contributes to our progress and impact. You have pretty much, to use the current phrase, been everywhere, every doing everything everywhere all at once. You have you are a really important part of building the infrastructure, the architecture of sustainable finance and sustainable business and sustainable world more broadly. Before we get into some of the specifics, what was your pathway to working on sustainable business when you first stepped into the role, I believe, in 2007? What was the path from point A to, to that point? That's a great question. First of all, let me just thank you and BSR for, for having me on. You all, I consider old and good friends, so it's always a pleasure to talk shop with people who I know I'm on the level with. And Suze, it's been a long time. We did serve early on the SASB board, really helped build it. And Suze's leadership was unprecedented. So it's great to be with both of you. The path to this was circuitous. I think a lot of folks, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got out of college, but I did have a bit of an environmental bent because I had spent some time in the woods in Wyoming for about a month at an impressionable age. And it really impressed on me the importance of the environment. And I ultimately ended up in DC working for a nonprofit called the Recycling Advisory Council. And um, as would have it, they needed some work done on full cost accounting and life cycle analysis. So they picked the liberal arts history major to do that work. And I had to learn a lot about it. And for me, it was the first time the light bulb went off around the connection between economics and the environment. And the fact that ecosystem services were an important component, basically, of our entire system, economic system, that really sparked my interest. Worked for that NGO, life got in the way, I got separated from that, ended up at business school, owning a brew pub at one point, normal path forward. As Um, one does, own a brew pub. Yes. But as I took on financial roles within Bloomberg, I got reinterested in this idea. And Mike Bloomberg had just become mayor of New York. And he had introduced a Plan YC 2030, which was really the first major sort of citywide sustainability push. And I thought, you know, Bloomberg is headquartered in New York. How can we as a company contribute to our owner, founder, and mayor of our cities? work and that we should do something similar. Wrote a proposal, ended up moving from Hong Kong, where I was the financial controller, back to New York to work for the chairman, Peter Grauer, and implement this. It was supposed to be an 18-month program to integrate sustainability into operations and products and services, and it ended up being about a 13-year run before I left in 2019 to pursue a number of these other initiatives, also Bloomberg sponsored, by the way. It's been a it's been a really interesting run. That's fantastic. And that sounds like a case where you might not have known exactly where things would land when when you got started. And I think that's a good good lesson for everybody to you followed a big idea in a good institution and see where it led. Yeah. It's certainly our ambition in the beginning was simply to green our operations. It wasn't until we really started thinking about strategically, like, what do we do well as a firm and how can that contribute to the broader sustainability space? And we're data news and analytics at Bloomberg. 
and the field, the rise of sustainable investing was really just beginning to percolate, but we had a real data problem, right? There was a random reporting and selective KPIs, and there were a few frameworks, but they weren't really targeted to the investor. And so being there, realizing if we wanted to build a product and really sell it to the broad community that we needed a more, we need to treat sustainability data like we treat financial data and standardize it, make it look at financial materiality, understand it's how decision useful it is for allocation of capital. And that's where Suze and I'm about SASB because SASB was actually pursuing that very objective. And so Bloomberg really got behind that initiative. And now it's amazing that SASB is part of the IFRS, which is the largest. Of course, we don't have IFRS or IASB use here in the U.S. because we always have to do things different, but everyone else has adopted it. And I'm just, I'm really proud of that, that sort of 10 or 11, 12 year run that SASB had to, it's really going to be part of the fabric once they release their standard. It's an amazing story. Yeah, I want to come back to that in just a couple of minutes. Your role at Bloomberg while you were there, one more question on that, because in, in my observation, it was quite unique that you were there, as you say, both helping the company do what it needed to do to address its own operations and footprint and so on, but then using its influence, which, and Bloomberg is a unique institution, but there are other institutions that could do somewhat comparable things. It's unusual. So what was that like playing that role, being dual-hatted in a sense? Oh, man, it was fun. It was really fun. I think I had the great fortune of having been interested in the, as you noted, in the broader intersection of an, the environment and economics. And then I was became, got into a position where I could try for things. It's a private company. It's got a charismatic owner and founder who also has an environmental bent. So I do think there was some more freedom there, but we were making it up as we went, man. This was like early days in the field. And so I felt quite lucky in that not only did we control most of our own sort of real estate, and we actually had a pretty integrated supply chain. So on the operation side, we had a lot of control over what we could do. And so we were able to bring our operational footprint down and we really treated it like a business objective. Most of my team were MBAs. We were crunching the numbers. We were looking for economic and environmental ROI. And the good news is that we were able to find a lot of it. But then we had this products and services that were super influential in the world of finance, media, events on within the terminal, as is famously known, as well as other services. So we ended up buying new energy finance. We were the first major data provider to launch an ESG product. We launched a green website, which is now Bloomberg Green. It, it really was unique. And then the third leg of the stool, which is really what differentiates is that Mike is extremely philanthropic. And luckily, if you have a good idea and press hard enough, persistence is omnipotent. I got to get some of those resources focused to these this ecosystem of data and standards that you need. Good information is the lifeblood of good decision-making, no matter what policy, finance, whatever. And you said, we need to fix this. Who better? right, than us. And Mike was generous and helped found SASB and found the TCFD and found GFANS. And we supported Carbon Disclosure Project and Global Reporting Initiative and the Inter International Integrated Reporting Committee and all the sort of mixture of folks working on different pieces of this and ultimately helped 
bring them together. It just made sense from a business point of view that if there was a data problem, who better to focus on solving it? But it shouldn't be solved by one firm. It needs to be solved collectively, multi-stakeholder process. And so it's been great. And so we we had that third leg of sort of philanthropic support that was really important. It made it a kind of a much more holistic and strategic. And I would just add, I think the inclusion of ESG information in the terminal was one of the most powerful validators, quite frankly, because once that's there, as you say, that's something that everyone, including my son, who works at a very large bank in New York, that is the lifeblood of information. So that's, that's hugely significant. Yeah, um, so no, I, we knew it would be. I had to fight for real estate on the terminal because it was still a relatively new and not heavily used product. And it reminds me of those the grocery stores and people fight for product placement. I did convince the senior leadership to to put ESG sort of upfront on this on the equities tab instead of buried in the back to try and garner interest. Now the whole suite of sustainable finance products and services that Bloomberg has has been growing really fast and makes up of Bloomberg's enormous, but it's still a very healthy revenue piece. It's an important part of their business suite now, which is great. Also a validator. I think when, yeah. when these things resonate in the marketplace and people put their money behind it, that sends a powerful signal. There's no doubt about it. So you mentioned a number of initiatives that you've played a role in helping the launch. And I want to talk about some of them individually. Before doing that, give us the 30,000 foot view about how these different pieces fit together. For everyone on this session, what's your vision about why these disparate pieces are important and how the whole of them is great, it can be in any event greater than the sum of its parts, because instigating so many different things, it's important to keep an eye on the big picture of how the pieces fit together. No, it's a great point. And for those of you who um, understand trends, it's not unusual in the beginning of a trend to have many different what are seemingly from the outside fragmented approaches. And it's not until later that you land on, okay, is it BHS or beta? By the way, those of you listening have to be old enough to understand that comment. But um, yeah, yeah. but even before that, there were multiple technologies, right? And over time, they, once there's, you really, to reach escape velocity and scale, you need to have some standardization. So in some ways, it's a normal process sustainability data and ESG data and reporting was all pretty new back then still, right? And so it made sense. The second point I'll make is that this is a systems issue. And so that means you need, not only do you just need good reporting frameworks, you need feedback loops where the user of that information can tell you, hey, that was useful credit allocation versus an equity investment versus in aggregate, certain information is useful for macroeconomic analysis and other you have to learn by doing. But you also, not only do you need that feedback between the sort of user of information and the preparer, but you also need accountants involved. How do you treat this on a financial accounting side? Oh, an assurance. What about the insurance assurance folks? We need this information validated. Do we have appropriate mechanisms to do that? Have they been pressure tested through criteria for standard setting and so forth? 
Then you've got the service providers like Bloomberg and others and investment consultants. It's an ecosystem and you're really as strong as your weakest link. And so I think you have to approach all these different angles to try to move the whole system forward. Otherwise you'll have leakage, right? And you'll, it creates a bottleneck for wider adoption and utilization. And in the end, let's not forget that good information needs to be trusted, right? And if people are going to allocate capital based on that, it needs to have the same rigor that financial information has. And financial information also has that whole ecosystem surrounding work on it. So there are just lots of pieces of the puzzle that needed to come together to make it work. I wanted to get to some specifics, but you mentioned something that I want to drill down on a little bit, which is assurance. And with more regulatory requirements coming to the fore now on reporting yeah. the disclosure of what we used to call non-financial information, there are a lot of people getting involved in these discussions that look at this through a compliance lens. What's yeah. your perspective on that? Is that is that a good thing? Is it mixed? What's your perspective? It's mixed. Look, I'll, I used to say in the early days when companies were just beginning to report, people would say, they have to get it assured by a third part. It's got to it's got to go through the same rigorous financial information. And at that time, I said, please no, actually, let's not put up another roadblock for people disclosing the information. I think in this day and age of hyper connectivity and hyper transparency, and you can find out any uh, companies would be foolish to falsely report on this information because someone will bust them and that would be worse. And I think there is a natural incentive based on where we are today to not do that. I do think, however, that the combination of standards and that are assurable in some level of assurance for certain part pieces of the data supply chain are really important. I think other bits that's more qualitative and might be more estimates. So scope three comes to mind as being challenging. I do think it's appropriate to have some level of safe harbor for data and information that is, you're really just giving it your best shot, let's be honest, right? And so you shouldn't, people shouldn't be legally liable for that, for any misrepresentation there, in my view, at this time. Again, the great thing about a regulator leveling up the field is, boy, when the regulator gets involved, all these challenges get fixed faster because people realize they need to sort it out. And the more information in the field, the better we'll get at sorting that out. I'm going to shift into commentary mode and say I couldn't agree with you more regarding wise use of the safe harbor provisions. Yeah. It's a principle that has long existed in reporting and disclosure, and I think it's uniquely suited to some of this because we're setting regulations in a world that is still evolving. And that's that's a challenge for regulators on any issue. Look at just look at the use of tech. I think it's this it's a little bit similar. How do we yeah. regulate when things are changing so rapidly? Yeah, that, we need to be humble, right? We need to be a yeah. little bit humble about what's transpiring here. We're asking a lot of institutions. It's really important they do it and let's help them do it and do it right. And you can revisit that safe harbor over time as things progress. Strong opinions lightly held, as someone I know and respect often likes to say. Let's talk about SASB. It's come up a couple of times. What was the genesis of SASB? And maybe tell a little bit of the story about how SASB has now been folded into the ISB and acronym alert under the IFRS Foundation. Apologies. (laughs) 
I'm sure a lot of the people on this call are sustainability wonks. You'll be familiar with that. If not, we'll try to explain it as we go. Yes. But. SASB, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. I had been tasked by the CEO, a guy named Dan Doktoroff, to help figure out how we would get better data. And he wanted to bring together a bunch of Bloomberg clients, both from the corporate issuer side, preparer side, as well as the user side. And this gets back to the point where I thought, I kept writing this business plan for that, and he kept saying it wasn't good enough. And then I ran into Jean Rogers at a conference, and she showed me her business plan. And her business plan was just better. And I brought it to Dan Doktoroff and said, look, this is what needs to be done. This is the way to do it. And it's multi-stakeholder. You're going to have lots of people involved. And I think we should get behind it. And he reluctantly agreed <laughs> because he wanted us to do it. But he realized that this is, a again, part of the system problem. And it required bringing a lot more people in. And it would be looked upon Maybe more suspiciously, it was just owned by one firm as self-interested and all of that. So that's really, SASB had raised a little bit of money and the idea was germinating, but Bloomberg came in with a big seven-figure grant. And then that was it enabled them to attract some high-profile people like Mike himself was chair for a while. Um, and then Mary Shapiro joined. And you had, all of a sudden, it was really an all-star cast of board members that really helped legitimize this work. And they spent six years researching, sec they, their innovation was they brought sector specificity to the ESG field and with a very relentless focus on the potential for financial materiality. And what they realized was different ESG issues impact might consider, you might consider that common knowledge today, but it was not so about 12, 13 years ago that there are certain issues that impact certain sectors more than others. And that was a big deal. And then they just really got traction. <clears throat> they got wide acceptance um, from the investor community. And that's, we all know the golden rule, right? He or she with the gold rules. And when they, the investors start asking companies for it, companies actually liked it because it enabled them to work with businesses more about, okay, what is financially material, right? How... How does this impact the business? It, it was, a, I'd say, tip of the spear to piercing that used to be the separation between the sustainability and CSR teams and the main business. And it began to be more cross-functional. Fast forward, those of us who were funders in the space, and it wasn't just Bloomberg, there are many more. And you, Aaron, you talked about this years ago too. We had, at some point, this space was getting more important. And while that fragmentation of reporting frameworks and standards was good in the beginning, it was becoming a problem. And so a lot of us got together and said, how do we engineer some consolidation in the space to make the whole greater than some of the parts? And so eventually SASB merged with the IIRC and CDSB, sorry, the IIRC is an International Integrated Reporting Council, and it was made up of a lot of accountants, which is why they were important. Accountants, I know, maybe not as most exciting. I used to be an accountant, by the way, but it's a very important part of the architecture. And then you had a couple of others like the Climate Disclosure Standards Board. Ultimately, those three entities came together and then were acquired really more philosophically than financially by the IFRS, the International Financial Reporting Standards Board, who created the International Sustainability Standards Board, who sit next to the International Accounting Standards Board, which is the financial accounting for most of the world. And that is just an enormous development in our field if you've been around for a long time. 
and to have the IFRS recognize the value of this sector-based approach, I think was really important. And so that was a 12-year run, right, from when SASB started until this moment. And it takes a long time, but it's it shows that if the, that old adage that persistence is omnipotent. And now you're going to see, because they have the, the ISSB is going to release its sort of final report or their final standard, the S1 and the S2, this year. And they've got a lot of support from IOSCO, which is all the securities regulators around the world. And so I do expect there to be relatively widespread jurisdictional adoption. And I think the important thing to note for companies, and this is my last point on this matter, is if you do business anywhere outside of the U.S. at all, there will be widespread adoption of this standard and the standards from Europe. No matter what happens with the SEC, you're going to get captured, to use that term, if you're doing business outside of the U.S. at all. Because the difference between a regulated approach, which is what the SEC is doing, and a legislated approach, which is really what Europe is doing, and we'll see about ISB, is legislative can grab everybody. <laughs> and the, the SEC is limited to publicly traded institutions or publicly traded securities or instruments. I think it's important for those companies to be looking really closely at this stuff, not waiting to see what happens with all of these things, because it's coming your way one way or another. I was going to ask about exactly that, because I think for most global companies, they say, hooray, we've gone from way too many standards, guidelines, principles to let's call it three, although that's an oversimplification, the ISB, the CSRD from Europe, and now SEC regs, which should be coming in Q2. That's still three, and they're not going to be identical. We know, for example, on scope three, the SEC is going to take a softer approach than Europe has and the ISSB has. So your point, I think, is play to the highest standard because one way or another, that's what you're going to be held accountable to. Is that an accurate way? That, that is right. And I think those of you, Suze knows this, this, who advise companies, any large institution I've ever dealt with, and I, in my role at Bloomberg and now I deal with a lot of them all the time, they all play to the highest standard. It's just, frankly, easier if you're a global firm to come up with the highest standard. You don't want to be mismatching. And I think the Venn diagram between the are more similar than people think. Yes. And there's definitely an effort. You got to remember that the IFRS, the SEC sits on the monitoring board. It's not like these people are developing things in a vacuum. They just have different political realities that they're dealing with. And I would say three is a lot better than the bazillion we had before. I think in the end, you're going to see looking for same similar bits of information. There is some different approaches. They, I will tip my hat to them, they are working hard to try and align and make these interoperable to the best of their ability. But it's going to take a little trial and error along the way. And so for those of you firms who are trying to report against these multiple things, I would encourage you to engage with the various stakeholder groups that they have set up to help give them feedback on what's working and what's not, because they can make amendments and adjustments. Just one note, we're about halfway through the hour, and in a few minutes, I'd be delighted to take questions from those of you listening in. Just pop it in the Q&A tab at the bottom of the Zoom screen. You know the drill by now, and happy to convey some of those questions to, to Curtis. Let's stay with one more framework for the moment, which is the TCFD. And I remember when at the seminal Paris COP, 
that your former and still, I guess, semi-current boss, Mike Bloomberg, and Mark Carney, with whom you work very closely now through GFANS, of course, launched the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. We now have the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures and discussion about a task force on inequality financial disclosures. How? What role do these play? I have seen... I don't want to answer the question for you, but I have seen the catalytic role that the TCFD has played inside boardrooms. Is that what you aimed for? What what was the animating idea behind the TCFD? I would say that the TCFD has been much more successful than we anticipated it would be. Let's just put it that way. And I've had to reflect on why that is. I think there are three reasons, or there may be a few. Um, One is it, it played along that same theme that SASB did for ESG and that climate was really becoming much bigger of a problem. And even SASB, who did this, innovated this sectoral approach, realized that there was one ESG issue that cut across nearly every sector. It might manifest itself in different ways, but by far the biggest issue facing all sectors was climate. Now, the regulators are a funny bunch in some ways. They can't take the word of one, even no matter how credible NGO. So they wanted to create a task force to go deep into the climate bit and really figure out what is financially material climate-related disclosures that might help inform investors to make better capital allocation decisions and to help create a smooth transition to a low carbon economy. And then it's the regulator's job to determine if it's a systemic risk, but they realized they needed information from the private sector to help make that determination and to help create a smooth transition. If you believe in the thesis that, you know, good information makes good decision-making, that makes sense. I think, so one, it was an idea whose time had come. Two, the most important letters in TCFD are not TCFD, they're FSB, Financial Stability Board, which is the G20 regulators. So your treasury, central bank, and securities regulator, all there, serious people doing serious stuff. We then, I think, made a very important decision to write a framework using all the great work from SASB and CDP and all the other disclosure frameworks that we've seen before narrow the aperture a bit to focus on financial materiality, because again, these are regulators that we're writing this for, and they only have a remit around financial materiality, and put it into a framework that was consistent with how businesses operate in general. So don't create some kind of framework that's going to have to create a whole new world inside each business to manage it, but most businesses have governance a strategy, risk management component, and then they track, they create metrics and targets to track progress against those. And so we created that four column framework. I also joked that we had to get all the recommendations on one page because senior executives really need a cheat sheet and we can have a lot of material in the back, but it's gotta be consumable quickly. And we wrote it in a way of mainstream finance. We did not use, which we've been doing on this call quite a bit because we can't help ourselves, climate speak or sustainable investing or ESG speak. And so that it was consumable to a wider mainstream audience to put climate in perspective as a business and financial risk. I think we succeeded 
in establishing that climate risk is financial risk. Like in the end, like that was still questionable back then. And I don't think it is anymore. And the good news, we knew when we were designing the framework, by the way, that it could be used by other issues, not just climate. So we're thrilled to see all of these other approaches and on other areas of interest for all of us, really, to be using that kind of grounded framework. And I think because it wasn't separate, it was part of how you generally do business, that that helped. So all those things helped. The scenarios that are called for under TCFD have been, I think, very catalytic. The lexicon of physical risk and transition risk, these are, as you say, these are concepts that business leaders understand instinctively. Yes. Let me transition from that to the climate transition plans that you are aiming to put into action through, this is going to be the, I think this is the last acronym, at least for a little while, GFANS, also launched at the Glasgow COP, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. And just without getting into the totality of it, I know that the concept of climate transition plans, in my view, that's another side of the same coin with the risk-based approach from uh, the TCFD. Okay, you identify the risk, then you develop a plan to enable the transition. Tell us more about the thinking behind that. No, that's exactly right. And I'll note it's not by accident that it's the same band members from SASB, TCFD. Mark wasn't part of SASB. I think the only reason Mark Carney was Yeah, wasn't part of SASB because he was the Bank of England governor and the chair of the Financial Stability Board, so he couldn't be at the time. The TCFD, one of the last pieces of guidance that the TCFD put out was on guidance on metrics, targets, and transition plans, because it became clear that we really did not only it was great that our strategy recommendation had this, this resilience question and recommended using scenario analysis to identify those risks, but you really need a transition plan to accompany that. And that was outside of our remit because we are an FSB creature and the regulators are held tight. We said we need one and here are some high level principles, but we didn't go forth and write further guidance on how to do that. And that's where GFANS picked up. And just very quickly on GFANS, it is a coalition of 550 financial institutions. They're in sector-specific alliances underneath, so banking, insurance, asset management, et cetera. In year one was really about bringing in people to commit to it. In year two was about developing the framework to help them implement that commitment. So we did a little bit of running before we walked (laughs) on this one. And now it's about implementing those transition plans to really drive forward the commitments you made and the targets you've set. And so you need, we see that being the next big thing. And we also, the difference between this and TCFD is TCFD is now the basis for all those mandatory requirements that we talked about earlier from the CSRD and the SEC and the IB, there's already transition planning language in the SEC disclosures. There's transition planning language in the CSRD, and there's a UK task force on transition planning. So there is much, and the ISSB has transition planning in it, but again, it's light touch, and GFANS is trying to provide a bit more specificity 
And in fact, the UK government's recommendations are based on the GFANS framework. So we really see this as a progression and should, in our view, a transition plan should accompany or be integrated in or part of your TCFD report to provide a holistic thing. And it is about, it's about opportunity. In our view, there is no question we are transitioning. It's a question of speed and smoothness. And we feel like transition planning is going to be foundational to our ability to successfully move the economy to this low carbon future. And I would add for any individual company, just can't assume that the future is going to look like the present. And so a robust transition plan, in my view, no strategy can be considered resilient unless you really have a picture of how to make that transition. And here again, this is where things that used to be relegated to sustainability teams are now front and center in every company's major decisions. Now, no, let that's me, right. so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I said, that's right. I agree with you. I think we're seeing, again, it's an idea whose time has come. You've got declining cost curves on these technologies. You've got increasing policy ambition. You've got increasing physical risk. It's you need a transition plan. It, no matter if you're a government, a corporate, or a financial institution, it's pretty important. There are a lot of crosswinds right now. Let me start because you were just talking about GFANS. There's been just a wee bit of turbulence in the financial services sector and the banking sector over the last couple of weeks. Does this worry you about ongoing commitments, or is this just part of what we have to surmount? It worries me in general. It doesn't worry me about the long term. I do think it's a very hostile environment in the U.S. for this kind of work, at least for this work to be public and to make public commitments. Nobody wants to be dragged in front of Capitol Hill or to some state legislature to answer questions that, frankly, are beside the point, in my view. <laughs> um, and so it does put a damper on the work, but the work goes on. I would argue whether these firms are publicly committed or not, the good news is most of the large institutions are already publicly committed and doing the hard work. We would like, we need, this is a systems problem. We need a systems approach. And so we'd like to bring in more firms, small and medium-sized enterprises. But my guess is that's going to have to probably wait a little bit. It is a lot of, the signal to noise ratio here is not great. It's a lot of noise. But it is putting a hamper on it. I do think it's a distraction, frankly, for the really critical tasks that we have ahead. But we're going to keep pressing on. And in some ways, honestly, the folks that have been involved with us since the beginning are really learning by doing. And we're going to know a lot more. We're going to be a lot crisper, a lot more efficient on how to go about doing this in a year or two. And I hope that the, the dust will be settled by then. But maybe I'm glass half full on this issue. I'd love your perspective, Aaron, on, on what on that. I agree with what you're saying. I think the work is continuing. We're seeing this with our 300 plus member companies. There is a little more diligence about what is being said publicly. And frankly, to some degree, that might not be a bad thing so yeah. that there's rigor in what's communicated externally. I think the open question is, is there a way for the business community to push back on some of the more specious claims about yeah. what is wrong with ESG investing? And I think I understand there will be some announcements at the series conference tomorrow in New York about this. President Biden used his first and so far only veto just today, yesterday or today, to ensure the Department of Labor's rule on 
looking at ESG factors is sustained. I think that's the open question because in a vacuum, some of these less supportable claims can take on a life of their own. And I think the business community has a unique role to play in making clear why ESG is a good idea. It's a good risk management tool. It's a good forecasting tool. And as so many people have said, it it's a way to ensure economic vitality, not the opposite. So 100%. And I think our earlier conversation really highlighted the fact that a lot of what we're doing is trying to provide better information to help people make smart capital allocations decisions. And these are real risks. People have been doing ESG analysis as part of their investment decision-making since the dawn of analysis. They just didn't call it that, <laughs> right? You want to understand the policy risk. You want to understand some of the social impacts because that has a license to operate risk and subsequent policy risk. You need to understand environmental impact because that creates a, a, all kinds of litigation risk. And these technology cost curve declines are really going to be disruptive, right? And so this is just good business, and we need to remind people of that. Let me shift to an enabler here, which is technology. I know you serve in an advisory role for a firm called Persephone. I know Suze knows Persephone as well. Happy to hear you talk about them, but more broadly, you've helped to build this system where data can flow, companies then have to manage it. So how should we think about the tech solutions that are out there? What role do they play and what should they be designed to do? And let me stop there and then I'll have a follow-up for you. Yeah, I think we're in a pretty exciting time. You've got this, the rise, you've got hyper-transparency as we talked about earlier. You've got the rise of big data. You've got machine learning, natural language processing, AI. It's crazy. We, I think we're in a, place where we have more data than we have the capacity to utilize it effectively. <laughs> and so I definitely see technology solutions as being hugely important to help us make sense of that data in a way that, again, is decision useful to use one of my favorite terms, whether you're a business policymaker, NGO, anybody, how do I make the the fire hose of data is much larger than our, our ability to take it in. And so we need technology tools to help us parse through it and improve that signal to noise ratio we also referenced earlier. So look, firms like Persephone and Context Labs is another firm that I work with. These guys are really utilizing best-in-class software and developments in those areas I mentioned earlier to help companies get a hold on this. It used to be really expensive, man, to run around and collect all this data from individual assets that a company may own or influence or have a financial or operational control over, but there's much better ways to do that now. And so I'm bullish on the role of technology in this. And this gets to my point earlier about holding firms accountable for the information they disclose. If you don't, I always tell companies, you should disclose as much as you're really comfortable doing, because if you don't disclose it, some analyst somewhere is going to come up with a narrative. You can either own your narrative or have your narrative created by someone else. And so I would get in front of this. Otherwise, the technology allows people to create in there. There's nothing an analyst hates more than an empty spreadsheet sheet box with no number in it. So God damn, he's going to find or he or she is going to find one and put it in there. And they'll use a lot of these tools to help do that. Take control of your narrative as a firm and disclose. Other than that, look, we are in 
it's crazy when I think about the technology in our lifetimes, Aaron, that this happened. And it's Moore's Law is still in place. And we're going to see so much. It's a really exciting time to be in the field. Every opportunity has its risks, and we're going to have to manage some of those risks along the way. But I think it's I think we have cause for cause for hope. Let me so I think that's right. What about scope three? In my view, that's the biggest holder. There's information on social issues, which is more qualitative. That's got its own trajectory, but scope three is where in theory, data could be available, but right now we don't have it. Will tech, will these, some of these tech platforms help with that? I think they'll certainly help with that. It's complicated. I know that the GHG inventory protocol, sorry to geek out listeners on the phone, but that is the basis of, that's the, and it's run by the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, the World Resource Institute jointly. You know, that methodology and protocol was developed 20 years ago. And so it does need some updating. There's been some updates. It was actually developed longer than that. There was an update in 2004, I believe, and a couple of tinkerings here. But there is flexibility, which there's always a balance on information sets that you want to have between a principles-based and prescriptive-based. The more prescriptive you get, the more the law of unintended consequences come in and it becomes a checkbox exercise. And so... Scope three, which I think rightly allowed for some, the methodology allows for a few different approaches that you can take to it. The problem with that is, is then you don't get comparability, yeah. right? Now, comparability is a, another funny word. I wouldn't use scope three. I'm not necessarily, I don't look at scope three exposure from two different firms and to compare them, actually. I just look at it at that firm's exposure to scope three, because that is supposed to represent carbon risk in their value chain, right? It's not intended to compare against the other company because the other company may do their scope three analysis totally differently. And so I think it's an extremely important piece of information to help sh shed some light on what the carbon or in some cases, a proxy for climate risk is in the value chain of that firm. But it's not a panacea. And so I think we do need to push for greater disclosure of scope three. Um, I do think that you need some, some flexibility. And I'm glad to see that the GHG inventory protocol is actually opening up work on this to try to see how they can tighten it to create a little, to make it a little bit better for everybody. So I, I think it's important. I always have thought it was important, but I also am a practical person and realize that it should be strongly encouraged and that it, the burden might be high to have it be mandated across the board. That might be a bridge too far and you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Not to mention, and you guys are lawyers on the phone, I'm not, but the legal challenges the SEC are going to face on this stuff yeah, are going yeah. to be enormous and that particular provision, I think, creates risk for the whole proposal in a way that doesn't. The good news is, as we alluded to earlier, if the SEC doesn't require your stakeholders really want you to disclose it. Your investors want you to disclose it. Europe wants you to disclose it. You shouldn't stop working on it. This is not going away. And I think the technology solutions are going to help us deliver something more robust in the future on that. Terrific. Curtis, you know, the big messages from the IPC report released yesterday were urgency is as urgent as possible. We have 
a heavy task in front of us over the next eight to 10 years. The report also makes the case that we have a lot of the frameworks, a lot of the technology, and a lot of the capital that we need. Not enough capital, but a lot of capital. And I think this conversation has shown that you have actually helped to build these frameworks, technologies, and move philanthropic capital. It's a shame there's only one, Curtis, but we are grateful for all that you've built and the tireless efforts. And one of my, personally, one of my favorite things about doing this work touches on something you said a couple of minutes ago. I think use the word practical. Practicality is important. Practical idealism is what we need. And I think you embody yes. both of those. So thank you for your thoughts on this. Really enjoyed the conversation as I always do when I chat with you. And Suze, let me throw to you to, to close, close the session. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Curtis. Yeah, I think the practical idealism, and I think combined the other message and you didn't say it, but it is inherent, is that there are some people like you and Aaron and your organizations that have been slogging away at this for now decades. And I think I, I sit here in Silicon Valley where there's great interest in innovation and figuring out how to harness all of that data, for example, for good. I want to make sure that those listening today and afterwards realize just how much work has gone into it and very good work. Taking that as a basis for the work to come, as opposed to laying whole new railroad tracks, because people like you and Aaron have tried, as when we met, you tried a whole bunch of railroad tracks and in some areas, which ones work best. That doesn't mean that now where those tracks sit there's still a need for a lot of innovation to get us to where we need to go. But I am just, I wanted to leave with that. So thank you all very much for joining us. This And this will be up and uh, recorded. And we, we usually have a couple hundred people who listen to it afterwards. We know that it's going to be well-received, Curtis. And stay tuned for our April and May episodes because we will be back. Thanks so much. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.